Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? It is 1.45, Friday, December the 11th, 2020, and it is time for this, the 98th trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam, and I got a few questions for you. First question, are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? I mean, I really hope so. I really, really do, since you're watching slash listening to a podcast about it. I would I would hope there's some interest there. With that interest, do you have other things that take precedence over your magic interests? Your job, your career, your partner, your children? Any and all of the above. Listen, I've got a wife and three children at home and a full-time job. I understand. That's why I started doing this. But in spite of all that, are you still trying to find ways to improve at Magic the Gathering? If so, then get ready to feel like a creature entering the battlefield, because I'm about to graft some extra power onto you. After a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor is uh, PureMTGO.com. It's one of the largest collections of Magic the Gathering content on the web. I... I can't recommend them highly enough. There's literally something for everyone there. Something for everyone. Commander players, pauper players, 60 card players, 40 card players, theory crafters. There's something for you on there. Go check it out. While you're hanging out on the web, check out their sponsor at MTGO Traders. They are who I preferred to use before I had any stake, you know, before anybody had any stake in me, I staked my claim with MTGO Traders because they're just the easiest company to do business with when it comes to getting cards for Magic Online. And of course, don't forget to check out the parent network at constructedcriticism.com. There's been a lot of moving and shaking on that network, including a new project that is on its way. Uh, I, I will let the, I will not try to steal their thunder, but just be excited. Be very excited. You know what? Be even more excited than that. It's going to be great. And speaking of things that'd be great, if you like this show enough to help me keep doing it, it'd be great if you would head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg if you want to support this show in a more direct manner. This show and every major piece of content I put out is always going to be free. But if y'all like what we're doing, we're going to put it to good use. With that out of the way, let's dive into our first segment. Our first segment every week is Budget Spotlight, where we look at an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a commander-centric card. Usually with a theme lining up with what the episode's about. So our uncommon this week is Neoform. Neoform is for a blue and a green, sorcery, I think, 
heavens occurred is not an instant. Can I just say that before I go any further? Uh, Neil Form is a blue and a green sorcery. As an additional cost to cast, sacrifice a creature. Uh, search your library for a creature with converted mana cost X plus one or less, where X is the or it's X or less, where X is the sacrifice creature's converted mana cost plus one. Put that creature onto the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. Shuffle your library. So, it's a centerpiece to two different degenerate game one decks in modern. One of which may eventually get support in Pioneer. Uh, the two decks in question, the, the most degenerate being Neobrand, where you use Allosaurus Rider plus Neoform and put a Gristlebrand onto the battlefield, draw a ton of cards do a whole bunch of more degenerate things and obliterate your opponent on the second turn of the game. But the other one is technically historic legal, but the price for this card doesn't matter for the purposes of historic. And the only reason it's not pioneer legal is because dual caster mage is not in a pioneer legal set that may change down the line. Whether they put it in a Pioneer Masters or they just print it into a core set that is going to be legal in Pioneer. The combo for the uninitiated in Historic is with Seagate Stormcaller. You put a mana creature down on turn one, then on turn two you cast... I guess as long as there's a mana creature on turn one or turn two. You need access to four mana on turn on the, the combo turn. But you need to resolve Seagate Stormcrawler, which says your next instant or sorcery that costs two or less gets copied. And then you cast Neoform, sacrificing your Seagate Stormcrawler, which will then allow you to go get a... Which will put two copies of a spell onto the stack that will allow you to go get a three drop from your library and put it into play. You then go get Dualcaster Mage with the copy. Dualcaster Mage enters the battlefield copies the original Neoform again. Still has X equals 3. Let's go get another one. Copy it again. Still has X equals 3. Go get another one. Copy it again. Go get another one. Copy it again. Go get a glass pool mimic, which will enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature you control. Copy it again, go get another glass pool mimic, copy it again, go get another glass pool mimic, copy it again, go get another glass pool mimic, copy it again, and then end on a haste enabler. Any random generic, as long as it's three mana or less, that gives your creatures haste. And then you kill your opponent. So, I mean... At its core, this card enables some utterly degenerate nonsense. You either get Gristlebrand from your library onto the battlefield, or you get just exactly lethal damage from your library onto the battlefield in one of the coolest ways you could possibly do it. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good time to me. I'm not saying I play it because I don't, but I'm also not saying I wouldn't play it if I could. 
Uh, but even as a fair card, Neoform still has a pretty high power ceiling. The, the ability, anything that says go get a creature from your library and put it on the battlefield. What? Come on now. That's ridiculous. That's what it is. It's ridiculous. For two mana, I can curve up my creature. That's, that's pretty stellar. Even as a fair magic card, like jumping from my two drop to my three drop without having to actually have my three drop in my hand. And my three drop gets bigger. That's pretty good. I like that. And you can like Neoform for the grand sum total of 25 cents a copy. That's, you drive a hard bargain. Moving on to our rare, we're looking at Bring Delight. It's, it's casting cost is three, a blue and a green. It's a sorcery. And it has Converge. Uh, you search your library for a spell with uh, a non-land card with converted mana cost X or less. Where X is the number of colors spent to cast to bring to light. Exile that spell. You may cast that spell without paying its mana cost this turn. Shuffle your library. Or it's, uh, no, you go get it and then you cast it. That's how it works. It's a uh, little bit, it's a little bit different than the, it's, it just goes and gets it and then puts it directly onto the stack. So, it's the centerpiece to the Niv to Light deck in Pioneer. And even in the past, it's been a centerpiece card for uh, Bring to Light Scape Shift. It's been a centerpiece card for just some weird, cool, spell-slingy style decks in the past. I really love the Niv to Light deck because it's like the, the penultimate version of the I just play all the good magic cards deck and it's really cool like bring the light lets you do that little bit unfair thing in your otherwise relatively fair tame mid-range deck if we want to call resolving Niv-Mizzet Reborn tame like this thing's still really 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 good but it's also got a ton of value in commander where I mean, it offers a level of redundancy you might not have. It interacts well with cards like See the Truth. Because even if you only have blue and green mana to spend on it, you can go cast See the Truth from your library and you will add all three cards to your hand. Uh, it interacts well with Thibblethip the Lost. It interacts well with just a number of things. If you somehow couldn't spend mana of color to cast it, even if somehow X equals zero, you could do nonsense like cast Ancestral Vision and draw three. That's cool. I don't know how good it is, but it's cool. And for the low, low price of $1, we can do a lot worse. We can do a whole lot worse. And moving on to our mythic, we have Nyssa, Steward of Elements. 
Nissa is a blue or green in X. Enters the battlefield with X loyalty. And then you have a plus two of scry two. You have a minus zero, or you have a zero where you reveal the top card of your library. If it's a permanent card with converted mana cost X or less, where X is her loyalty. You put it onto the battlefield. And then for minus six, uh, untap two target lands you control. They become five, five Drake creatures until end of turn with flying and haste. So cheating in ways to protect her is an interesting mechanical decision. And scry two is a plus two helps to make her more efficient because you can cast Nissa as a three mana one loyalty planeswalker and then immediately plus her up to three and scry two and then that will allow you on the following turn to zero and potentially put a cheap permanent onto the battlefield and then x equals six or more represents 10 flying damage out of nowhere now truth be told there were some other cards i considered for the mythic in this slot but for Nissa, the price tag of a dollar fifty a copy just kind of won me over. A dollar fifty for a Mythic Planeswalker who can be as tame or as broken as your mana situation allows. That's not bad. And last but not least, for our commander focus card, we have unexpected results. Unexpected results is either two a blue and a green or three a blue and a green. I'm not dead sure which. I genuinely can't remember. But it's a sorcery. Uh, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a non-land card, you can cast that card without paying its mana cost. If it's a land, put that land onto the battlefield and add unexpected results back to your hand. So this thing is, on the surface, it looks like your classic kind of bajanky, cheaty, cute little commander trick. But I would argue this thing is a staple for any aspiring Simic deck. Because if you are built around putting non-land permanents onto the battlefield, it's going to help you do it. Or built around casting, you know... You want to resolve a bunch of spells. You want to resolve. You want to resolve ramp spells. Well, it can find you one. It can. It can hit a land, and come back. Like in a deck that wants to, that cares about casting spells, whether it's just Simic or Teamer or Sultai. It's a spell that you can cast potentially over and over. You know, whether it's with Riku to Reflections, it's a spell, and if you you hit a spell with the copy and then hit uh, a land with the original, the original comes back, but you still get the benefit of having hit a spell with the copy. That's pretty sweet. Seems pretty good. Um, but in the uh, in the notes, I said. 
It's a rare Simic centerpiece that isn't regarded as completely busted, but its floor is a ramp spell that returns to your hand. And for the price of 50 cents, 50 cents for that card, you can do a whole lot worse. You can do so much worse than unexpected results. And speaking of unexpected results, I did a contest in the Facebook group and uh, Patreon Discord. And I only got one result back. I did a contest asking for Brew of the Week submissions. The winner, the winning deck got their name shouted out for this week's Brew of the Week segment. And they got their choice of five M21 Arena pack codes or $20 to MTGO Traders. I only got one submission. Suffice it to say, that was an unexpected result. Uh, but that one submission proved to be the style of deck that I really wanted to talk about this week anyway, because we're going to be spending so much time in the main topic talking about how utterly broken Simic as a color combination is. And this deck has just enough of that like classic janky brew feel to it that I still like talking about it. And that deck is Brandon Wheeler's Skewtate. For those of you who don't know, uh, Mutate was a mechanic that premiered in Icorial Air Behemoth that allowed you to kind of splice creatures together. It was the, the fully realized version of the augment mechanic from Unstable. The idea that you could put creatures together and give the creature on top the physical presence on the battlefield, but it would have the abilities of everything it evolved from. And you could either make the mutate costs more or less mana to facilitate appropriate power levels on triggers. And it is a super cool mechanic. It is a it, it is a dead-on perfect bullseye for the flavor of the idea of creatures just constantly growing and evolving and becoming meaner and nastier and, and doing more and more and more things. Absolutely perfect flavor win. Hats off to Wizards of the Coast for the mechanic. That being said, it hasn't seen a lot of competitive play. Because it was unfortunately forced to share a standard format with the cards Brazen Borrower and Teferi Time Raveler for most of last most of its time in standard so far. Uh, it was forced to share standard with Teferi until Teferi was banned, and then it's been forced to share standard with Brazen Borrower its entire existence. And that that's, that's a bit of a problem when you invest multiple resources into a creature only for your opponent to just put it back in your hand. The tempo loss is pretty big, and as a result, a lot of these mutate decks never really got off the ground. They never really got a lot of people working on them. We never got to find out how good they could be. In the case of this deck, it is a stripped down, to the point, 
straightforward implementation and I applaud that vigorously. I'm not going to do it because I'm driving and I need my hands. But instead of splashing other colors to try to get more and to become more diverse, Brandon opted to just play the most powerful things. Uh, those things being the core mutate package, which is Polywog Symbiont, uh, one in a blue, one three. Creatures you cast with mutate cost one less. Whether you're casting them for their mutate cost or not, if they have mutate, they cost one less mana. And then whenever you cast a creature spell with mutate, you can draw a card, then discard a card. So that's one of your core enablers. But uh, the, the core concept of the deck is small non-human targets allow you to power out unbelievably powerful starts, i.e. Gilded Goose into a, three, into a Gem Razor, or, you know, Symbiont into Migratory Great Horn plus Parcel Beast. rockets you ahead of your opponent in development. You leverage powerful synergies to create absolutely massive boards. The idea that the mutate deck is soft to removal is kind of a weird one because most of the time you're actually not looking to leverage one giant mutate stack the way the, uh, the blue-black precon deck is. You're just trying to maximize the triggers from the mutate things you're playing. Yeah, you would love to get multiple migratory great horn triggers and just get all the lands, or hit us, you know, multiple auspicious star tr triggers when you played one, when you mutate on top of one or under one. But at its core, like, it's 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 about doing enough to pressure your opponent with smaller mutate stacks to mitigate the disadvantage inherent to the archetype. And I just used a lot of massive words. Uh, but the synergy between Scoot Swarm and Mutate is also just the most Simic-flavored on-the-nose thing I can think of. For those of you who don't know, well, the way Scoot Swarm is worded, it says whenever it's landfall... Whenever land enters the battlefield under your control, you create a 1-1 insect token. If you control six or more lands, instead that token is a copy of this creature. And if you mutate something else on top of Scoot Swarm, you get a copy of the whole mutated creature, all abilities included. That's ridiculous. Just put a Star X on your Scoot Swarm, hit a bunch of lands, hit a few more lands, and hit some more lands, and then your whole deck ends up on the table, and you don't know what just happened other than your opponent just decided to get up from their computer and throw it across the room. Because the game capped out at 250 tokens, and they don't have a board wipe. That's ridiculous. That is the, the level of unfair nonsense that I'm here for. So, 
for customization, the biggest decision comes on whether or not to splash another color. I would argue it's better to keep things streamlined because you get to play more copies of all your most powerful cards. But I could also understand it if you wanted to touch on red for Genesis Ultimatum, or if you wanted to touch on black for the black mutate cards, or if you wanted to touch on uh, red, or white, rather. I don't know why you would, other than, like, some kind of nonsense. And we all know I love some kind of nonsense. But I like the uh, stripped-down, streamlined, measured approach that Brandon took. And that's a weird thing to say about a version of a deck that is playing, you know, Scoot Swarm and Mutate cards and Auspicious Star X and Migratory Greathorn and Gem Razor and Polywalk Symbiont and Ugin. But that's the measured approach. <laughs> Beyond that, there's also the, uh, the argument about whether or not you want to try to roll a companion into this deck. Most notably, it comes down to whether or not you want to run any non-creature spells in the deck at all. Because if you don't, you can free roll Umori the Collector as a companion, which will further give you mana advantages. It'll also incentivize you into black because it, also, it reduces your casting costs even further. But, like, at its core, the idea of just having a companion for the low, low price of not playing Ugin in my otherwise completely creature, f you know, uh, uh, in my completely creature-filled deck, you can do a lot worse. And there are some wild mutate targets out there that get even better when you have room for them. A card like Questing Beast is primo mutate target. Keyword soup is a great thing to strap a, a C, C Dasher Octopus to. Like, C Dasher Octopus on a questing beast is hilarious. So, I mean, I love it. As for the inherent weaknesses of the deck, it's going to run into the problems you run into with any given synergy deck ever at any given time. Which is the idea that sometimes you're going to draw the wrong half of your deck. You're going to draw all your payoffs and none of your enablers. Or all your enablers and none of your payoffs. And just get beat down by somebody who has a fast draw or a disruptive draw while you're trying to find the way to play magic and pull ahead of your opponent. Removal plus disruption is especially good against a deck relying on key pieces. In particular, if you can keep Polywog Symbiont and just good mutate targets off the battlefield, then this deck is going to be forced to pay full retail for its creatures, and that's not good for anybody, except for you as the opponent. And then last but not least, we don't actually have a lot of interaction of our own. The, the nature of the mutate mechanic does not allow you a lot of room to play cards to protect your stuff. You just kind of have to play enough of it and hope for the best. So, with that out of the way, let's dive into the main topic. Thank you again, Brandon, for your submission. I hope you enjoyed those packs.
He chose the arena codes. So if he happens to win again, fun fact, the only arena codes I have are M21. So I will not actually be able to give Brandon more arena codes. It's only five per account. But with that said, let's move into our main topic. Who are the Simic Combine? They were introduced in spring of 2006 in the set Dissension. Where last week we talked about the is it, we talked about them being like your average chemistry lab partner dialed up to 11. The Simic are more what you expect to see in your regular media as a mad scientist. They are the laboratory experimenters. They are the gene splicers. They are the crossbreeding. They are the, the, they're the doctors on Ravnica, ironically enough. But they're doctors in a very, very, very liberal sense. Medical care for the Simic consists of trying to upgrade the injured body. Uh, they experiment with gene splicing and hybridization, often leading to utterly outlandish combinations of creature types. Outside of Ravnican lore, this combo has one of the richest competitive pedigrees in the history of magic, and you could argue it comes from like the last two years. Blue and green are widely regarded as two of the best colors in magic. Blue because it has access to the best disruption, the best combination of disruption and resource management abilities, and green because it has the capacity to rocket you ahead on resources with which to manage. And when you combine the two, it just the the it's it's absurd. And we're going to be saying that a lot about Simic. So strengths. Blue interaction, green threats, and the combination of ramp and draw. There, It's a really slippery slope between an okay Simic deck and one that needs a ban. As we've seen for the last year and a half. We went from... The blue, the blue, the black, green mid-range deck splashing hydroid crisis. To just one set later, Simic Ramp being a deck, and then it was team, it was uh, Simic Nexus, and then it was Team of Reclamation, which was Simic splashing red for a win condition, and then it was Simic Flash, and then it was. Oko, and then it was Uro Nissa Hydro Crisis piles, and then it was Reclamation again, and then it was Uro piles again, and then it was. We just can't get away from blue and green as a base color combination for some of the best decks in standard. Even playing more fair, and I use fair in air quotes, there are very few combinations of colors that are better suited for more effective mid-range work. The idea of mid-range being, I'm going to play the best cards at every point in my mana curve that exist in a format, and when you have the two best colors, it's not hard to get a collection of really, really good magic cards. So, I don't know what to tell you. There's a reason one of the best decks in modern is Uro, Urza, and piles of good blue and green cards like 
There's just a lot of them that are really good. Turns out when you can rocket ahead of your opponent on mana and then play cards ahead of schedule that on curve would be more powerful than what your opponent's doing, it's a really good place to be. As far as weaknesses, it struggles to permanently remove opposing creatures, which kind of sometimes can give you an end with aggro, where you can get them beat down low enough that you can take a take card advantage losses in order to close the game out by getting in chip damage and then close it out with some burn or prowess triggers. And then you also tend to rely very heavily on individually powerful cards to catch up on tempo so if your opponent understands the matchup you can fall behind and then the card you're looking to leverage can be taken away from you because your opponent knows that's your out but the, I mean at its core the way you beat Simic is by outplaying them because you are not going to outpower them unless you are your own Simic deck with a splash that's a little bit over the top that's it. From a mechanical identity standpoint, they've had three printed mechanics. They have not had any repeats. Although, unlike some of the other the other guilds we've talked about so far, these all share a common theme. Notably, the reliance on plus one, plus one counters. The first mechanic was graft. Uh, when a creature entered the battlefield under your control, you could move a plus one, plus one counter from a creature with graft onto the creature that entered the battlefield. It was not a mechanic that saw a lot of successful play. There were some cards from the mechanic that saw play, but it was because they were on rate reasonable magic cards like Plaxcaster Frogling, not because they were just absurdly powerful cards in their own right. Like nobody's gonna com- nobody's gonna confuse Cytoplast Rootkin for an absurdly powerful magic card or something that's going to leverage a ton of synergy for your deck but it is just a 4-4 four, for four, 4 that can prove difficult to remove and that's what made it see some play uh, the second mechanic was evolve a creature with evolve when a creature with greater power or toughness entered the battlefield under your control you could put a plus one, plus one counter on your creature with Evolve. So anytime something bigger comes along, it's going to grow to match it. Or it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow a little. And ironically, this mechanic has seen the largest bulk of its, of its success in Gruul decks. Uh, with the power of Experiment 1, the pseudo-Evolve creature in Pelt Collector... Although I would argue there's a sweet Simic plus one plus one counter deck to be built that features uh, Hadana's Climb, um, Experiment One, Cloudfin Raptor, and Harden Scales. I'm not going to say that deck's going to be good, but it'd be super cool. You could potentially get lots of plus one plus one counters all over the place just because of how your deck is constructed get lots of damage in and that's what these decks are about and then most recently we had the adapt mechanic which for me was one of the few really good ones from a design perspective like an interesting design perspective uh, 
from the guilt, the, the year of Ravnica we just got done with. Notably, a, a creature with adapt, you could pay mana. It, it would have adapt in a number, and then you would pay mana, you would pay a cost, and if that creature didn't have any plus one plus one counters on it, it would put a number of counters on it equal to the number that came after adapt. The most commonly played and one of the most iconic creatures now, I would argue, in Magic's history because of what it represented from a cultural standpoint, is Terramander. Terramander being a 1-1 for 1, had adapt for 7 and a blue, adapt 4, would put 4 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it, and it would uh, cost, the adapt cost would cost 1 less for each instant sorcery in your graveyard. So a little bit of a departure from your traditional Simic flavor. Uh, another honorable mention goes to Growth Chamber Guardian, who had adapt two for two and a green. And when a counter was when a plus one plus one counter was placed on it, you could go get another Growth Chamber Guardian from your library, put it into your hand. Notable because it didn't have to successfully adapt, it just had to have a counter placed on it. So in conjunction with Hadana's Climb, it allowed you to just keep free-rolling your next Growth Chamber Guardian while your Hadana's Climb kept charging one up, which was a super sweet synergy. What are some of the common tropes of Simic? You've got, obviously, in, in Guild, one of their most common mechanical choices is the use of plus one, plus one counters. They use them as a resource. Especially with the adapt cards in conjunction with some of the older ones, the ability to remove counters from your creatures to do things and then use adapt to put them back on is really cool. It creates a form of resource that, I mean, honestly, no other color combination really has. You have... Ramp and Lands Matter cards being together. A card like Tatiova Benthic Druid is a really good example. Every time a land enters the battlefield under your control, you can draw a card and gain a life. Couple that with green ramp spells and you start to rocket ahead of your opponent from a resource-based standpoint. You not only get to flood the board with lands, meaning you will dr both draw more action and be able to cast more powerful spells, but you're also going to draw additional cards with Tatiova, which will conceivably at least turn into additional powerful spells or ramps and you just constantly stay ahead of the ahead of the curve that way powerful top end spells blue and green in particular they like x spells and they like uh they they like like really really expensive spells Particularly in green, but even just put together. X spells, spells that have that just cost a lot of mana for really powerful effects. It's it's a common theme among the two colors. Cards like Omniscience that you can ramp aggressively into and then start casting prohibitively expensive spells ahead of schedule. Uh, tribal Synergy, mo most notably... Tribal Synergy in blue-green tends to be very... I don't, know what's, I don't know what the word for it is. It tends to be kind of unorthodox. 
Like, merfolk is a tribe in blue-green. Snakes are a tribe in blue-green. I can't think of another tribe in blue-green. I'm sure it exists. I just can't think of it. Um, Flash creatures. I mean, it's a common trope. Green uses flash on creatures that protect your, your board, that protect your investment. Blue uses flash creatures just liberally. They, you know, blue cards love to come in at instant speed. Green cards love to come in at instant speed to mess with your plans when you put the two together. Uh, Hexproof at instant speed is also another common mechanical trope of Simic. Cards like Dive Down, Blossoming Defense. I mean, they're, they're common tropes for a reason. Uh, unique forms of evasion like landwalk or unblockable as opposed to flying or intimidate or anything of, those, of that nature. Snake, uh, in particular, these kinds of decks like to be... Uh, the, word, the word I like to use is finesse, but even then, like a finesse Simic deck is going to be a little bit more powerful than other finesse decks. Like connecting with a cold-eyed selkie is a lot stronger than connecting with a with a I don't know a miscloaked herald wearing a curious obsession. Like they're both two twos that draw you a card, but the selkie's harder to block. The selkie's harder to answer because it's three drop, so on and so forth. It just gets a little ridiculous. That's not a great analogy, but it is an analogy. And then last but not least, blue-green are home to Morph. And in particular, it actually goes largely rooted in Teamer. But between Teamer and Sultai that they did the, the ramp Commander Precon in, a lot of the support is just blue and green. So you don't actually need the third color to play an effective Morph deck. Den Protector is not asking you to play red or black mana the red or black morph cards are. And I don't know that they're good enough to do that. Typical archetypes, I mean, I said it already, mid-range. When your your game plan is to get ahead of your opponent on mana and then play cards that are better than them on curve, but play them early, you've got a good plan for being a mid-range deck. Uh, you've got ramp, because you marry blue card draw, Green mana ramp and there's the absurdly powerful top end cards of both. You've got the big aggro approach, which was formalized with uh, the green blue stompy decks. While Dominaria was in standard, it was also, you know, there there was the snakes and ladders deck. There was there there were a number of sort of big aggro. Simic decks, even going back to one of the first competitive standard decks I played in uh, Ravnica Time Spiral Standard in uh, Scribbin Force, where you just you played like Llanowar Elves and Birds of Paradise in order to ramp into Spectral Force, which was an 8-8 trample that didn't untap unless your opponent controlled a black permanent for five mana. But you played it in conjunction with Script Ranger, which could return a forest to your hand to untap a creature. 
And then you would just get that thing down and it would be so stinking big that it didn't matter what your opponent was doing. And then, of course, your synergy aggro in the form of like the plus one, plus one counter decks or the, the, the flash decks or the tribal decks or what have you. Where you're just kind of trying to stack abilities on abilities, the mutate deck, whatever the case may be. Apologies for the train in the background. I can't seem to do anything about that. But the basic overview I can give for Simic... If there's a good stuff deck, there's a good chance the first two colors you're playing in it are blue and green. I don't care what the format looks like. If there's a good stuff deck, a deck that's just playing a bunch of really good magic cards, and they haven't banned all the good blue-green ones, you probably can start with blue-green and feel pretty good about your decision. You know, you look at standard right now, and I would argue you could build Simic Adventures and not be a, not be embarrassed about it. You don't want to cast the spell half of Merfolk Secret Keeper, but it is a one-drop creature to pair with Edgewall Innkeeper, and it blocks well in your aggro matchups. Brazen Borrower is really good in the aggro matchups by making them pick up the Embercleaved creature, allowing you to counterattack for a bunch. You still get to play Beanstalk Giant, Lovestruck Beast, Edgewall Innkeeper, and Great Henge. So you get all the good green cards, but then you get to marry them with blue cards that stunt your opponent's development instead of trying to outmuscle them. You you outmuscle them with your green cards and then you use your blue cards not to not to beat them down, but to just slow them down allowing your green cards to do better work than theirs. Whether it's bouncing the the lone 1-1 creature they control before attackers with borrower to using ram through before combat to chip in for some extra damage so that you get a better attack next turn. Like, the argument can be made that a blue-green deck is still very good in standard, despite them banning nearly every good blue-green card for the last two years. If Lucky Clover were still legal, Adventures would be the best deck in standard. And it's in large part because of the blue-green cards. So, even then, it's still defensible. And that's what's so scary. The fact that Uro's banned, Oko's banned, Omnath is banned, and you can still make the argument that a blue-green deck in standard is respectable. That's ridiculous. Anyway, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Again, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, share it with your friends. You got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter at HomewardPathMTG. On Facebook, my name is Adam Spain. On, uh, if you're a patron of the show, you gain access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord, wherein at $1 per month, you gain access. At $3 per month, you get your deck pushed to the front of the line for Brew of the Week when we're not doing an open contest like this. Uh, and at $5 a month, you get 
your very own episode. You will help me write it. I will run everything by you about your topic, your brew, your budget spotlight, all of it. It all comes back to what you want. You get your very own episode complete with a patron shout out. But with that said, that's all I got for this week. Remember, we're on episode 98. We just finished episode 98. Next week, we do episode 99. That's going to be about the Golgari. There is going to be another Brew of the Week contest for Golgari. Please don't miss it. And then after that, I'm actually going to take the next week off. Uh, Christmas with the family. We don't actually plan on like going and doing anything because pandemic. But I want to just enjoy the weekend with the family uh, the next weekend for New Year's will be episode 100. I have a very special guest coming on for episode 100. So keep your MTG dad jokes locked and loaded. I will be putting a thread up in the Facebook group, on Twitter, and in the Heasy Game Media Discord so that we can just get a bunch of them because this guest is going to love them, whether they'll admit it or not. So, keep your dad jokes close to the vest for three more weeks. Next week, awful week, and then the week after, start unloading them, get them ready. Get them out there where I can see them so that we can share. We're almost there. The road to 100. We're almost done. So, I'll end this episode as I do every, every week, every episode, rather. Everybody's going through something right now. Everybody's got something that's bothering them, especially this time of year, the holiday season, being the way it is, the pandemic, the seemingly never-ending quagmire of election political theater. Remember, when interacting with other people online, because it's the primary venue with which to interact with people right now, never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard, enhance creatures, and be kind. And we'll catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.